Please keep standing. We have one more scripture to read, and I just asked Pastor Lynn uh, to leave me the great honor of reading Psalm 1 one more time, since I don't know when I'll ever be back to preach Psalm 1, so <laughs> I'm being a bit, uh, a bit uh, uh, selfish here. Psalm 1, let's read this glorious psalm one more time. This is what the Word of God says. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray one more time. Father, We simply come before you now pleading and asking for grace to hear and grace to speak and grace to understand and the grace that we need to obey and to apply. And so, Father, we pray that you would be blessed by what is not only said here, but Lord, but the way that we receive your word. And so we ask for the help of your spirit now to drive home your word into our hearts so that there will be genuine spirit-wrought obedience and love to the unseen Christ. Lord, thank you. We ask your blessing now on our time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been looking at what I've entitled The Way of the Righteous, and for each one of these sermons I've given a title, and so this one would also be The Hope of the Righteous. The Hope of the Righteous. And, you know, we really begin to see that hope by way of contrast, because obviously um, here we are going to be looking at uh, the condition of the wicked first. Notice that that is the way that it begins. And so in order for us to really grasp the gravity of our hope, we also have to apprehend here the condition and the fate of the wicked. You know, it's so true that in Scripture, we are often confronted with things that may not, on the surface of them, appear to be you know, happy thoughts, so to speak. Not everything in Scripture is meant, in the sense, to make us feel good or happy all the time. But I thought long and hard of this because as I was going through this text and thinking and dwelling on the hopeless condition of the wicked, I thought this is certainly a a grave and a sober and somber theme. I mean, to think about the fate of the wicked is almost maddening if you really allow yourself to meditate on it for too long. But God knows in His wisdom that we need these warnings. We need to be uh, warned and we need to gain a heart of wisdom by meditating on everything, the whole counsel of God The law of the Lord, even as Psalm 1 directs us to do here. So the very first thing we want to look at here is the the hopeless condition of the wicked. 
Turn with me in your Bibles also to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, just to, just to be reminded of... Um, well, there you go. I tried doing it myself, but Robert knows, knows what I'm capable of and what I'm not capable of. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us of this very hopeless condition. Consider what it says here. Beginning in verse 12, he says, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers of the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So in other words, prior to conversion, prior to faith, prior to justification, Everybody was in this hopeless condition. We were all uh, separate from Christ. Notice the progression here in Ephesians chapter 2 that really the, the foundational issue here is that we were not in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And to make matters worse, he says, as Gentiles, really his point, as Gentiles, we were also excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, that's important because what he's saying by the commonwealth of Israel is that we didn't even have access to the citizenship of the nation that had the necessary revelation in order to come into contact with the Messiah. You didn't even have basic citizenship in the chosen nation of God. He says you were strangers to the covenants of promise. Notice how fantastic that phrase is, by the way, the covenants of promise. In other words, the way that Paul saw it is that God's ultimate redemptive promise that he reveals in Scripture is connected to his subsequent covenants. And all the covenants are bound to this this saving, we could even say this gospel promise. I'd say that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God promises to save a people through the seed of the woman, which of course is Christ. And he says, you were without hope and without God in the world. Very quick succession, but it describes for us the hopeless condition of the wicked that the psalmist is talking about. Those that have chosen to live in violation of God's law, face them, they, they, they are faced with this hopeless condition. They are without hope. And to be without hope means that you are without God. You do not have God as your hope, and therefore you are hopeless. And to make matters worse, he doesn't just add this at the end for no reason. He says, in the world, which means not only are you hopeless, not only are you without God, but conversely, you are in the world. And what is the world? The world is the sphere of sin, the sphere of condemnation, the sphere of evil. It's the sphere of hostility to God, not hope with God. It's really, really amazing to consider when we consider the people we love, our neighbors, our family members that are without God, without hope in the world, the, the bleak and dire situation that they are in, truly the miserable situation that the wicked are in. Everything in this psalm is made to bring in a sharp contrast between the life of the person who has chosen to live their lives in accordance with God's law, following His Word, obeying the Word of God, you know, uh, uh, living their lives according to the Bible, and people who have decided to rebel, people who have decided to cast off God's Word, 
Uh, we're going to see that in Psalm 2, as a matter of fact. This is the characteristic of the nations that rage against God. They want to, they, 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 they want to tear the fetters apart and cast the cords asunder because they don't want to be bound by God. And the wicked are also, in terms of this hopelessness, they are in a place that is characteristic of a person that is depraved in, in every aspect. Let's, let's carefully consider what's being said here. I want to I point out three additional things here. In terms of the hopeless condition of the wicked, we can see this from three different angles. Number one, the instability of the wicked. You notice that? He says, the wicked are not so, verse 4, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. We could easily have said that it's, you know, the, in addition to the instability of the wicked, there's also the, I guess what we could even say, the value of the, of the wicked or the uselessness of the wicked because what is the metaphor here? The metaphor here is of, a, of chaff. It's, it's sort of the, that's what they would do with the winnowing fork. They would throw the chaff, they would throw the wheat up and they would separate the wheat from the chaff and the chaff would be blown away by the, by the wind and discarded because in a sense it was useless. It wasn't the, it wasn't the part of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the plant that gave you nourishment that had value. It was to be burnt up. It was meaningless. It was worthless. Very, very serious imagery that's being given to us here. And therefore, this tells us that the opposite of being planted by the rivers of water the wicked actually have no foundation. It's, it's a really bleak uh, picture. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6, because this is all leading to the idea of judgment. The wicked are headed for a certain judgment that they cannot withstand. They have no foundation in this life. They have no foundation in the life to come. And they are like what Jesus taught. They are, they are unstable in the sense of they, they, they've chosen to build their house on a faulty foundation, a foundation of sand that will not withstand the winds of judgment. Revelation chapter 6 verse 15 sort of capitalizes on this. It says, then the kings of the earth, Revelation six fifteen. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who is able to stand, not the wicked. That's exactly what Psalm 1 is telling us, that, that in the final judgment, the wicked will not have a footing. They will not be able to stand. The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. So this instability is really an insecurity. And, and, and it's a greater insecurity than the insecurity of, uh, of the instability of family or relationships or finances or the things that men and women tend to concern themselves with. They are more concerned about their temporal dilemmas than to be concerned with their greatest dilemma, which is the certainty of judgment for a life lived in opposition to God's law think about that. It's madness if you think about it. It's a people that are guilty of transgression, breaking God's law, and they weary themselves with temporal troubles. And they don't think about the more 
important issue of life, which is the instability of the soul, the crisis of the soul. While we have safety as the righteous, because everything that we've looked at in terms of the righteous, the blessed man that meditates on the law of God, he has safety. He has satisfaction. He, he is planted by the rivers of water, the streams of water. And he is productive. He has a meaningful life in Christ. But the wicked are not so. What do the wicked have but hostility, emptiness, hopelessness, lives of vanity, and as uh, Ecclesiastes says, chasing after the wind being devoid of hope, and being devoid of real meaning. The wicked chase after that which is meaningless. You can also see the hopeless condition of the wicked by the guilt of the wicked. The guilt of the wicked. This is a forensic angle. Because notice what it says. The wicked will not stand, verse 5, in the judgment They will not stand in the judgment because they are condemned. They will not stand in the judgment because they do not have the necessary righteousness to stand. Uh, Here, where it says the wicked will not stand in the judgment, it literally speaks of being approved. It it speaks of being, uh, being able to stand on your own moral ground. Being able, in other words, it's 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 standing on the, the 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 merits of your morality. But they have no merit. You know what grace is? The grace of God is not just that we inherit unmerited favor. The grace of God is God not just giving us his favor, but God overcoming our demerit. It's not just that man is sort of in a neutral situation and they need a little grace. They need a little help. They're in the red. Uh, They have demerit. Not only are they... Do they not have the necessary righteousness to stand in the judgment? They have the forensic guilt that will take them down into perdition. And therefore, the opposite of standing. On the day of judgment, the wicked will not stand, but they will recoil. They will fear. They will crumble. They will they'll be crying on the rocks to fall on them. And they'll have no argument either. They'll have no defense Their conscience will bear witness with the justice of God and the judgment of God. They will have no defense. They'll be fully aware of their guilt. They'll be fully aware of their moral pollution. They'll have no justification. They will be devoid of merit. Now that's why the Psalms speak about the fact that on the day of judgment, the wicked will be put to shame. Forever ashamed. I remember opener preaching... Uh, several years ago, and a group of lesbian feminists came to protest me. And they surrounded me. I'm not kidding you now. They all surrounded, they got around me, and they all held hands and began chanting, shame, 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 as if what I was doing was shameful. And I said, I don't know what spirit I had when I said this, but you'll have to. I said, you know, I'd rather you sit here and tell me shame, shame, That God would put you to shame on the day of judgment because you will be eternally ashamed. In Psalm 31, 17, it says, Let me not be put to shame. For I call on you, O Lord, let the wicked be put to shame and let them be silent in the grave. In Psalm 129, verse 5, listen to this 
amazing verse. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward, uh, to be humiliated, to be turned away. Uh, Think about it. The wicked have no regard for Zion. That's not talking about Jerusalem, folks. That's talking about being heavenly-minded. They don't care about God's heavenly city. And because they don't care about the world to come, they will be put to shame. Boy, we can go on with each one of these points. But the next thing is this. Not only will they, be, uh, will they be guilty on that day and put to shame, but also there will be an exclusion of the wicked as well. Did you notice that? Look at verse 5 again. Not only will they not be able to stand in the judgment, but it says also they will not be able to stand in the assembly of the righteous. What an amazing picture. And the symmetry here is perfect too. If you go back to verse 1, how did it open up? It says that, The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, and he does not stand in the path of sinners. The the, the righteous man is not to go into the assembly of the wicked. Why? Because the wicked will not stand with the assembly of the righteous. There There will come a day when there will no longer be a mixed multitude. There can be a mixed multitude in here. We could be mixed in terms of there are people in here who are righteous and people in here who are wicked. I remind you that in the world of the Psalms, the psalmist is not a politically correct, seeker-sensitive pastor. He has no problem saying there are some that are wicked and some that are righteous. There are some who are believers and will be saved and go to heaven. And there are some who are wicked and guilty and sinners and be condemned and go to hell. And he doesn't apologize for it either. It's really remarkable. It's it's almost as if what he's saying here, that in the final judgment, there will be one great final eschatological excommunication. One final act of church discipline where the sheep and the goats are finally forever removed from, from one another and sifted. Isn't that remarkable? That's what Jesus said he will do. In Matthew chapter 25, it will be a separation of the sheep and the goats. We're looking at here, what we're looking at here is the total collapse and the expulsion of sinful humanity from before the presence of the Lord. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2 really capitalizes this sort of end-time, great apocalyptic crisis that all humanity is going to face. Isaiah chapter 2, and kind of in the spirit of what we read there in Revelation, Isaiah 2 verse 10 says, Enter the rock. In other words, hide in the rock. Hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. Listen to that for a second there. Stop and pause and think. The very thing that makes God so glorious to us, the brightness of His beauty, the splendor of His majesty, the glory of God, the very thing that we worship God for, His glorious attributes is the very thing that the wicked will want to hide from. They will want to recoil from His majesty, not embrace it. The proud look of the man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning. And on the day of reckoning, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, and they will not sit in the congregation of the assembly of the righteous. 
Everyone, look at the universality of this. Everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that they may be abased. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22. Because in this expulsion, don't you see the irony? That while on earth, fallen, sinful humanity spends their time seeking popularity, notoriety, whether it's celebrities, whether it's wealthy elites, whether it's the snobbery of academia, or whether it's the high school clique, because of peer pressure, vainglory, and pretentiousness. People long for some sort of identity, some sort of notoriety or belonging to, but in the end, all of that is going to come to an end. When everything is said and done, there will only be this, there will only be one society worth being a part of. And it's not Hollywood. It's Hollywood. <laughs> it's the church. Very community that is today persecuted, oppressed, hated, despised, scorned, misunderstood. On that day will be completely vindicated, purified, set apart, and exalted above all wickedness and wicked people. Look at Revelation 22, verse 10. He says, Seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I'm coming quickly, says Jesus. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that is, in the blood of the Lamb, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and immoral persons and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Boy, we live in a world of lies, don't we? Lying undergirds and permeates everything in this world, politically, entertainment-wise, just everything. The world is so broken. But it's more than that. It, it, it's, it's, you get a sense from this verse that, that it is abominable in the sight of God and that in God's holy temple, nothing abominable will enter in there. That's why the wicked will not stand in the, the judgment. That's why they will not sit with the, the, the assembly of the righteous because, because it, by the time that this happens, did you notice? The fate is sealed. Uh, if you're a wrongdoer, you will be sealed in your wrongdoing. Your fate will be sealed. If you're filthy, you will be confirmed in your filthiness. Wow. Just amazing. Well, we can go on and on talking about the state of the wicked, and we'll return to this in a moment, but let's move to the next part, which is the hope of the righteous, what we could even call the covenantal hope of the righteous, because, as the psalmist says, he says in verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. See, God knows the way of the righteous. And what does it mean for God to know the way of the righteous? Well, we know this. It cannot simply just mean that he knows about it. 
It can't just simply mean that he knows about your life. He knows about your, your world or he knows about your, your conduct. It's much more than that. This knowledge is actually a covenantal knowledge, we could even say. It's a knowledge that God has of his people. Uh, it's the same thing that you know, the Lord told Jeremiah, before you were in the womb, I knew you. He has chosen, he said, Israel, you and you alone I have known from all the people of the world. It is a covenantal idea through and through. And you know where it is picked up at? It's picked up in John chapter 10, verses 14 to 15. Actually, the idea of the Psalms, the, 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 this covenantal knowledge which is found in Psalm 23, is picked up in John chapter 10. And what does Jesus say? I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. See, it's an intimate knowledge. It's a personal knowledge. It's a relational knowledge. Different aspects of this. It is a, it's a salvific knowledge. Why? Because it is put in antithesis to the concept of perishing. So you know that if God knows you, it's a knowledge that saves. It's also a benevolent knowledge because it involves God's preservation, His care, His concern for His people. And it's a knowledge of communion because it is where God intimately knows His people. It is where God intimately interacts with His people. In Psalm 23, where John 10 comes from, Yahweh is the good shepherd of the sheep and He keeps His people to the end until at last they are brought into the very epicenter of covenant life, which is the temple. And that's exactly what will happen to us. Christ will keep us until at last we come into the very epicenter of our covenant communion with God, which is the heavenly temple, which is heaven itself, which is God himself. That's why it says God is the temple. There can be nothing really more glorious than this. Isn't that right? Like Jesus, the psalmist is thinking, eschatologically about the elect, his remnant, his true people, his true Israel, his bride, the church, the church of the living God. Hebrews calls that the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven that we just got done going through. Because God has a covenantal regard for the righteous, we are safe in his everlasting arm. This is why the hope is so glorious for the believer, is because, because God has a covenantal regard for us. He knows our way. We are safe in his arms. Isn't that what Jesus said? Going on in John 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What a glorious, what a glorious, comforting, assuring promise the Scripture affords to us here. But also, notice how it ends. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And this is the psalmist trying to impart to us heavenly wisdom. Uh, Really, to become wise, you need to know two things. You need to know what is the benefit of a righteous life and what is the warning of a wicked life. It's very simple, right? I mean, this is Sunday school level, ABC, fundamental, basic Christianity. 
Why do you not stand in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of a scoffer? Because the way of the wicked will perish. Now that is an interesting phrase. Because he doesn't just say the wicked will perish. Did you notice that? He doesn't just say the wicked will perish. He says the way of the wicked will perish. Which is, in a sense, saying the same thing, but... He's emphasizing that the course of life, like Ephesians chapter 2 talks about, the course of this world, the, the, the spirit that is now leading the sons of disobedience, that whole thing, all of that is going to perish. In other words, the wicked will not see their satisfaction. In Psalm 112 verse 10 it says this, the wicked, the wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. All wicked ambitions that exist today on planet earth will come to an end and will perish with the wicked. All their wicked plans, all their wicked schemes, all their wicked ideas, everything that's going on right now with robotics, mind-bending evil that the world is right now trying to contrive with this technology that we all so admire. Not only are they striving for super robots that are going to be soldier robots that will have the capacity to annihilate all of us. You saw the Terminator movie. That's what's coming to pass. I can't even believe it. Or sex robots. Sorry. But I'm telling you, the way of the wicked is wicked. Evil. And God says one day the way of the wicked will perish from off the earth. Uh, Robert sent me an article this week that frightened him, and rightly so. It frightened me too. They said that two AI computers developed a secret language and were speaking to each other. And they didn't know what they were saying, but they knew they were saying something to each other. And that was not programmed or planned. They had to shut the computers down and start over. Why are we giving computers that power in the first place? What is wrong with us? Didn't we watch war games? <laughs> Some of you are way too young to remember that. <laughs> Keith, you remember that. I know Keith. We used to watch some war games. But you know what I mean. Think of it. Everything in the way of the wicked, everything that the wicked does, everything that God in His common grace has given to the wicked, they use for wickedness. And that's why their very way will perish. What does John say in John chapter 2, verse 17? The form of this world is passing away and so is its lust. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul says, Look, in a sense... Be of this world, but don't be, a, be in this world, but don't be of it. In a sense, use this world, but don't, be, don't make full use of it. What he's saying is what? Is don't hold so tightly to this place because this place, man, is going the course of the wicked. And, and, and guess what? That way, that lifestyle, that, those standards, that morality, those philosophies, those ethics, that worldview is going to perish. And he says, it's going to, it's passing away. It's passing away. And when Jesus Christ came, He gave the final sign that guess what? Yep, sure enough, the form of this world is passing away. The light is already shining. The kingdom is already coming. Amazing. Psalm 37 says, The Lord knows the days of the blameless, 
their inheritance will be forever. Isn't that so glorious? You and I are going to be upgraded, folks. We are going from this fallen world into an eternal inheritance that will never fade away. It's complete opposite. Total diametrically opposed to the fate of the wicked. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil. In the days of famine, they will have an abundance. But the wicked will perish. And the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of pastures. They will vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. Wow, think about that. That's why theologians talk about total depravity and the sinful condition of man as speaking of their sin and their misery because it is truly a miserable state and we were all there. But by the grace of Christ. I'd like to end with a responsibility and I'd like to apply this by going full circle with this psalm. How blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. We could say, for the way of the wicked will perish, verse 6. And therefore, I would like to leave us with a thought of separation, of being careful in terms of our relationships do we, do we sometimes give in to the counsel of the wicked? Do we sometimes identify with the path of sinners, not knowing that it will lead us to the seat of scoffers? You know, uh, Jesus taught this very thing. Because what the psalmist is de- describing here is he's describing ultimate allegiance. Uh, he's, he's describing whether or not you will give allegiance to the world, allegiance to sinners, allegiance to the way and the path of the wicked, or is your allegiance to the Lord, to His law, to His word. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, Don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be members of his own household. And I have seen that play out in my very congregation. I have seen the Word of God and the Gospel, and and we're seeing it, and some of you are living it. And you know that division oh so personally. Jesus says, if you love father, mother more than me, son, daughter, you are not worthy of me. You better listen. To the words of Jesus there, brothers and sisters, what he is saying here is that our ultimate allegiance has to be unmitigated to Christ. We cannot have any divided loyalties. And so we say, oh God, search our hearts. The apostles picked up exactly where Jesus left off. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, the apostle Paul begins to dive into this exact issue. And he goes so far as to say, Do not be bound up with unbelievers, for what partnership have the righteous with the lawless, or we could even say the wicked? What fellowship does light have with darkness? What harmony does Christ have with Belial, who is the prince of the demons, or Satan? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Wow. 
Just as God said, I will dwell in them and be and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out of their midst and be separate. Uh, in the Old Testament, God separated his people from the wicked nations all around in the most curious ways, don't you think? I mean, just read Numbers. Read Leviticus. Read the way that Israel had to distinguish itself from the, 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 the pagan nations of the world. God made them do all kinds of crazy stuff. Cut your hair this way. No, wear that. No, don't eat that. Wash your hands this way. No, don't go there. Pray like this. Totally different. As the world would look in and say, well, you guys are crazy. It was God making them a peculiar people for his own possession. And you know what separates us now from the wicked? It's not the way you wash your hands. It's not what you eat. It is not what you wear. Well, maybe. (laughs) How you dress. It's the knowledge of the Lord. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is what distinguishes us. What friendship do we have with the world? James says in James chapter 4, you wish to make yourself a friend of the world, you will make yourself an enemy of God. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul goes so far as to say, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but even expose them. So the minute you're confronted with the temptation to partake of a little worldliness, a little darkness, a little, you know, partake of a little bit of the immoral standards of this world, your immediate reaction should not only be to separate yourself from that, but as Paul says, and I think this is actually the best medicine, expose it. Tell your family members and your neighbors, don't live like that. You shouldn't do that. Why? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It might cost you the relationship. But do it in grace. Do it in love. Don't be an offense for the sake of being offensive. But if you know that your heart is right, my dear friends, I got news for you. It doesn't matter how nice you are. The minute you bring in the conviction of the Holy Spirit into that situation, you will not be, you know, the favorite person. (laughs) They will not like you. (laughs) And yet, Paul says, expose it. 1 Peter says, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, very clearly says, when you choose to live like that, when you choose to separate, the world will actually be surprised. They'll be alarmed. Why don't you just do what we do? Why don't you just live the way that we live? Why don't you talk the way that we talk? Why don't you watch what we watch, listen to what we listen to, and engage and delight in what we engage and delight in? What's wrong with you? Oh, I tell you, I know that you guys can bear witness on preaching to the choir here, but it's okay. The second you bring up the issue of homosexuality today, today, listen, folks, you are living in a generation that has changed drastically. Okay, it's not 50 years ago. In our generation today, the minute you mention your opposition to homosexuality, there's a gasp in the room. Uh, if I'm preaching, and the, mid, the minute I mention homosexual sin, everyone immediately turns and nods and curses and just the revolt against anything that is sexually pure. 
This is the world that we live in. And what does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us, be separate. Come out from them. Why? Because the way of the wicked will perish. How does Jesus fit into the equation here? I always wanted to connect every single one of these sermons in some Christological fashion to Christ. How do we connect Christ to this psalm? I have three ways of doing it. Ready? Number one, Jesus will judge the living and the dead. It is right for us to think of Christ when it says the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous because Jesus Christ is going to judge them. In John chapter 5, Jesus says the father Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whoever He wants. My translation, by the way. Verse 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Isn't that amazing? He has delegated final judgment to His Son so that God's God's agent of judgment is the Son of God. So that all would honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He, does not, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead. There are so many scriptures on this. He will judge the secret motives of man's hearts. That's what Romans chapter 2 says. Not only that, not only is Jesus judge. And we have to be so careful there because we can so easily domesticate Jesus <laughs> We can so personalize him to suit our little lives that we forget that he is enthroned, Psalm 110, and that he will put all of his enemies under his feet. Think about that. The the, the picture that we have of Jesus is a son judge who is sitting on his throne and one day he will subdue all of his enemies. I think sometimes our view of Jesus is far too small. Not only that, brothers and sisters, Jesus is our hope. The hope of the righteous is Jesus Christ. He is our hope. Now to think of it from the point of view of the Psalms, turn to Acts chapter 2. We're almost done here, but I, I want to show you this. Since we're in Psalms, I want you to see how the apostles use the Psalms to bolster their hope. The hope that the Psalms are talking about. This is remarkable. Because ultimate hope is found in the resurrection. But what is the resurrection if it is not connected to Jesus Christ? Listen, folks, it is not about just this idea. Someone rose from the dead, and therefore, like many people, many people speculate today, that what that means is that there might be life beyond the grave. That is not what the resurrection is about. The resurrection is only makes sense if it's connected to Jesus Christ. That's it. Notice that that's the way that Peter takes it. In Acts chapter 2, verse 24, he says, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Wow, see that? By the resurrection of the dead, uh, excuse me, of, of Jesus from the dead, God put an end to the agony of death for his people. 
since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Watch this now. Verse 25. For David says of him. That is so powerful. That is my hermeneutics right there. And I think you know it by now. That's my hermeneutical principle right there. That is a redemptive historical hermeneutic operating right there before your eyes that the inspired author, Luke, conveys the inspired sermon of Peter. And Peter says the hermeneutics is this. David in Psalm 16 spoke not of himself, but in reality he spoke of him. And this is what he said. I saw the Lord always, in, he says, always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will, make me know, you will make me full of gladness in your presence. David is saying that is speaking of Jesus Christ. And in Psalm chapter 16, that is the Lord, that is the Son having the promise of resurrected life by the Father. And we would say, based on the condition of a perfect life lived and a perfect death died. The resurrection is God's amen to the life of the Son. He raised him up so that he would know the path of life, eternal life. Finally, not only is Jesus our hope, our resurrection hope. There's so many scriptures I'm skipping. This is bad, but I don't have time. But the last thing is that Jesus knows his people. Oh, Philip, before, before you... Before Philip called you, excuse me, Nathaniel, before Philip called you, you were, and you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus took notoriety of Nathaniel. Jesus saw him. He esteemed, he had regard for him. He cared and loved him. Jesus knows us. He knows us inside and out. But more importantly, we are covenantally bound with him like a bridegroom to his bride. We are His bride. We are loved by Him. And because of that, you and I should celebrate. We should celebrate. One of these communion celebrations, we are, or one of these communion services, we're going to do nothing but celebrate. Amen? <laughs> and just get up to sing a fast song. No offense. Because the new covenant is Hallelujah! We are His and He is ours. Father, let that be the resounding theme of our hearts. That is what's missing from the wicked. That they cannot say, He is mine and I am His. They don't know your Son in the covenant of divine marriage, as it were. They're not his bride. And so, God, if there are any among us today that do not have this blessed hope of the righteous, would you sovereignly come in and, and dispel the darkness? Do what we cannot do. Change their heart. Turn their heart like the channels of, of water. Like you turn the heart of the king. Save, O oh God. And remind us, Lord, of our duty 
that we are not to be participating in the unfruitful works of darkness, but to even expose them, to be not unequally bound with unbelievers, but to be a light to them. And for those people in our church that are bound, let's say by marriage or some other relationship, may they have the strength to be a light. Strengthen them, because that's a hard calling. And Father, at the same time, we we were sobered at the, just the awesome reality of the judgment to come. Help us, Lord, in the busyness of our life. Help us, Lord, as finite as we are. Help us as earthbound as we often are. And sometimes we're so limited in our perspective. Give us an eternal perspective and remind us that judgment is coming so that we might have a heart of wisdom in numbering our own days. We pray that you would be pleased to do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.